the goods. So I don't know. <laughs> don't even go for us your question. Jason Brown, so cute. Jason Brown. Wow. It's so sweet. So warming, honestly. In all the work that we do sometimes and we think about the world and how people show up in it and just that just feels like something to put in my pocket right now. (laughs) To pull out and look at whenever I need it. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. Science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the (laughs) University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sassan Nagash at San Diego State University. Today, Sassan is going to bring us a discussion about what the divorce between Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, a.k.a. Yee, teaches us about the hardships of co-parenting. Oof, that is awesome. I love that. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, The Effects of Parenting and Temperament Similarity Among Adolescent Siblings on Positive Family Relationships. And then in Good or Bad Advice, we are going to talk about a tweet thread where people explicitly talk about bad mental health advice that they've received. And we're going to try to break down why the advice might be bad. So this is kind of explicitly already in the realm of bad advice. So it'll be a little bit different segment, but, you know, fun. If you have any advice, good or bad, that you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast.gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at attached podcast or go to attachedpodcast.com on the interwebs and send us a message. It comes to our lovely email account. We just love listening and reading them. We don't listen to the emails. I'm sorry. We do read them. Also, wherever you happen to listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, um, please rate and review it and uh, click subscribe. Subscribe. But before we get to all of that amazingness, how's it going? What have you guys been up to since we talked last? Well, I think several episodes ago, I had maybe shared that I had decided over the last few years to redo my daughter's former bedroom um, into some sort of like library cocktail. (laughs) I'm still not exactly sure what to call it. Leather was involved? Well, um, sure. (laughs) Except for all of the furniture is on like shipping boats oh. out into the Pacific. So there's the furniture I ordered in like 2020. It'll be here next summer. It's got, a, you know, a collection of stuff from around the house that I've taken from other rooms and put in this room. And it's you just really sit on the exciting. floor and drink your cocktails? I haven't even done that yet. I <laughs> have not used it for anything yet. It's green on the walls, Ooh. which is, yeah, I really, I, yep, yeah, I'm excited about that. Thank you for your enthusiasm. I appreciate it. <laughs> Hunter um, green, reaction, Kelly green. Yeah, it's like a really dark green. Yeah, I yeah, very it. dark. Mm. That's the reaction I was looking for when I like brought my husband in to be like, look at the walls. And he's like, you did it. And I was like, oh. So I'm now applying that approach to the room that we watch TV in, which I don't really have a name for that room. Like a people might call it like a den or like a media room or I don't know, the TV room. And it is the same sort of mix matched result. I just realized that I needed to do it because I went in there a few weeks ago and there were like feathers all over the floor. The quality of everything in that room is so poor. Essentially, my husband and my daughter had spent some time in that room and realized that the pillows have like holes in them. There was feathers everywhere. And I was like, well, this is my next project. So Were they having a cute pillow fight? No, they just laid down on the couch. I just don't (laughs) use that room very often. I did ask a bunch of questions about what happened here and they were like i mean we just used the furniture so it's time mm. it's time well i'm really yeah, excited about a hunter green wall and your furniture mm-hmm. going in there yeah eventually a, a good wall can be very inspiring i think it could uh, create lots of possibilities thanks oh i love that yeah as i you, love it as you can see i'm a big wall person i, I took a lot it. of convincing but um carlos i think just gave in you know how you just go to the point where you're like oh I can't have the same argument over and over. Here you go. Just do whatever you want. <laughs> that is. Do you want a wallpaper? Go to. Wallpaper. <laughs> but, oh yes, gosh. wallpaper. Fine. 
currently the strategy of my five-year-old anytime he asks for something and I say no he goes I'm begging you mommy I'm begging you and I say no he's like mommy please I'm begging you and I'm like one where did you hear this phrase I'm begging you and he literally doesn't stop like I've had to like revert to consequences once someone says no that means don't ask again (laughs) Uh, but anyway Sesson what have you been up to You know, I have spent maybe a week and a half, I should say a couple weeks, that's a lot, um, trying to plan for my husband's birthday. (gasps) Um, Well, that's how excited one should be when they plan for (laughs) a loved one's birthday. (laughs) That's the reaction one should have. But instead, every time February comes around, it's like a bit of like, oh gosh, here we go. (laughs) I've got to prepare. I got it wrong one year and his reaction was just so disappointed, not angry, sad, just like that it broke my heart. And since then, I've just been like hypersensitive to (laughs) getting it wrong. Yeah, (laughs) I can imagine. Oh my gosh. And um, I have to, it was right around the time I had my son. So I was like, you know, I wasn't just in a place where I felt like planning a birthday. Yeah. 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 Like, and really we typically don't, but it was so unplanned like that. We were like driving up and down the road, looking for a place to eat and like <laughs> spent half an hour trying to figure out what kind of food we want. And he just looked at me. He's like, is this my birthday? <laughs> 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 uh, so since then, I've just been really like, oh gosh, here we go. Let's get this right. And I think I got it right for his 40th, um, nice. for a COVID 40th, right? Like right, there's right, only right. so much you can really do. So um, it involved, um, you know, some scavenger hunting and um, just some good family time. But I feel like that's taken up a lot of energy. And fortunately, yeah. he seemed really happy with it. So that's good. <laughs> that know. sounds live, like live way to more celebrate planning. another year. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. And every year he's like, are you still on that thing about that one birthday? I'm like, <laughs> don't. <laughs> oh, yes, I am. Don't pretend loud. I didn't matter. <laughs> You're not too. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, last night, you guys, I got drunk and watched all creatures, great and small, on PBS. Oh, what? What? Gosh. What? <laughs> white wine and pbs masterpiece classic what i need to know what kind of wine you had if you're this excited about this white wine boda box boda box oh wow (laughs) classy stuff full-on classy picture this yes in my bed i didn't even whip out my laptop for this TV show on my phone. No, no. Oh, oh. <laughs> always makes fun of me because, like, my typical watching television position is like hunched over <laughs> my laptop, like squished down in a right chair there. and a pillow, elevates it a little bit. I did have a pillow. I placed my cell phone upon the pillow. <laughs> just watch it it was amazing it was a fantastic episode i loved it the original like the original original or like the remake the remake got it it was the latest episode of the remake which is just a darling show it's just pure cuteness and joy and like loveliness it it was lovely i really like good things from my mother so that, <laughs> that's the accurate demographic. That's, is that that's the demographic? That, yeah, yeah, that is. Yep. Yeah. I'm right yeah. there with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was my night. I feel okay. Like I have felt better in my life. Sure. Sure. Um, <laughs> but also sometimes it feels like it's a bit the theme of this podcast where I'm like, I drank too much last night. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> happy podcast recording. <laughs> <laughs> First up, pop in culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sasan, what you got for us this week? So this week, I'd like for us to talk a little bit about the 
challenges of divorce for folks with children. Um, some of you may know, some of you may have never heard of these names, but some of you may know uh, the names Kanye West, also named uh, Yee. I think that's the name you used earlier that I recently figured out. Yeezy? Yes, I'll go with Kanye West. That was the original, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but yes, I think one of those. And Kim Kardashian um, were married for several years and they have been um, going through a pretty difficult divorce um, yeah. in recent months. And while I tend to stay away from anything Kardashian, I <laughs> could not help recently but to be really captivated by just some of the headlines that I've been seeing in the news yeah. media around this divorce because it has gotten really nasty. Really hard, um, yeah. Really hard, really. And they have sort three of, kids together. Yeah. Is that right? Three kids. My understanding is they have four kids together. Oh, four kids. Um, I'm sorry. Four okay. kids. They think all under the age of ten, and the children have sort of been thrown and thrust into this, um, you know, limelight um, for many years. But I think recently, with things getting so nasty between the two, I think it's it's probably been even more difficult mm. and. You know, it's, it's sort of breaking my heart because it reminds me a lot of um, what we hear about, what we read about in our research around the challenges of divorce for parents and how they show up in their relationship with co-parents and what the implications are for kids. And so I thought today I'd just bring it up because I, I figured we'd talk a little bit about just what it means to try to uncouple, which is already a very difficult sort of space to navigate, very new for many couples, but doing it with children and the added challenges of trying to make it work for them. So, you know, co-parenting can be one of the most emotionally charged and challenging mm -hmm. aspects of divorce. I imagine with one, it's hard when you have two, three, four, and the more you have, the more difficult it is because you think about all the different needs of the children, right? Um, but coping with a divorce that you don't want maybe, or um, yeah. thinking about how maybe the other parent may not share in the same values and beliefs you have around the children, right? You once had the option to maybe negotiate that when you were in the relationship, but maybe not as much um, as a couple who now doesn't have that time, right? And energy to expend to try to really work those things out. Um, you're trying to do it at a distance, trying to figure out how do we show up for our kids in a way that we both support. Um, it can be hard. So I just really want to pose the question and be in conversation a little bit about some of your thoughts as well yeah. around, you know, what you come to understand when it comes to the implications. You know, one of my questions is what happens when there are sort of serious contextual factors that are added to the experience, including like mental health, um, mm. you know, power and control issues that existed once in the relationship that may have, you know, resulted in the divorce, but that are still really present. And when you start to move on and you start to um, bring in other people, right, other romantic oh, partners yeah. into the mix and how those factors can make the experience even more challenging. Like you're saying, it, it can be a very, very challenging time trying to learn how to co-parent because you are essentially um, decoupling, like you said, but you're still in this relationship that you're having to trust the other parent to co-parent with you. And, and there are some people who do this beautifully, but if the reason surrounding your relationship uh, ending was maybe mental health or power dynamics or whatever it is that is very, very contentious, it makes it very difficult to co-parent in a healthy way, an amicable way that's ultimately good for your kids. And oftentimes you see in really contentious uh, divorces that co-parenting, they start to use that child as a power tool. Uh, or communicating through that child rather than with each other. And that can create a lot of stress and anxiety in the child, um, which is not ideal um, because they're already uh, dealing with their parents um, splitting up. So there are types of co-parenting that are better than others. And that's established in research for sure. You know, um, one of the things that I sort of come to understand, you know, over time with the research and even with the example of this couple that we're talking about today is that even when initially a split might seem amicable, right? Like maybe both of you have agreed, like this is the way we, we need to go, right? We need to end this relationship. That over time, that amicable split may look less amicable 
And that can change the nature of the co-parenting relationship. Whereas you may think in the beginning, we have this, right? We are that couple who knows how to do this for our children. The reality is people will grow and change as they're uncoupling. And those changes aren't things that our partners always or ex-partners know how to adapt to. And so Mm. what was once amicable, right, could be much less amicable in terms of the co-parenting as time goes on. And I think for many, it can be very disillusioning. It's like, I thought we had this and now I'm realizing it's getting harder and harder, right? Things are changing in our own lives and in the lives of our children, right? Maybe kids are going to school and they're feeling the stress of the divorce and they're starting to show up in school a certain way. And now the parents have to know how to manage together, right? How to support the children. And they're just finding it much more harder than they initially thought. And how we adapt to the process um, is something I don't think we talk about often as a society. Mm. It feels very linear, like either you know how to do this or you don't, but there's not, you know, I think a lot of space and conversation around parents who have all the best intentions when they do split up to really co-parent and seeing how, gosh, this is actually really hard because we're not adapting to the changes that are happening in our family, within our own lives to know how to be there for our kids. And I think part of that is, you know, part of the natural development of learning any sort of new role or new relationship. Mm -hmm. It's rough. Mm -hmm. You learn it. And then you kind of come to an understanding. Sometimes it gets rough and you end up back trying to renegotiate something and then it gets better again. And and that ebb and flow is, I think is part of the normative trajectory of divorcing. Um, It's kind of rough, but then usually you find a pattern and sometimes there's a rocky roads here or there but not always, right? Like sometimes it becomes so contentious that oftentimes in the court system, they have um, child advocacy. So they can have someone, sometimes it's a social worker, sometimes it's another lawyer that can step in and their responsibility is what is best for the child. They're not the mother's lawyer. They're not the father's lawyer. Sometimes there's joint, it's not a divorce mediator. It's someone completely different who is on the side of the child and what is best for the child. So sometimes somebody like that does need to step in. I don't know enough about this situation to say that that is what is happening or Mm -hmm. should happen or anything like that. Um, It's just some context about what we know happens. And, you know, divorce can be really, really hard. But also we know that sometimes divorce is actually really good for some children and some families. Mm -hmm. If a relationship is really highly contentious, that stress can also impact the members of the family, including the children. But a divorce can really relieve some of that conflict and that fighting that's happening in the home. And the child goes from one parent to the other, but that stress is relieved. So children actually flourish after a divorce as well. So it's not always like a super stressful event. I just wanted to bring that up too. For sure. Yeah, I agree. The way that the parents handle it post you know, separation is critical, right? That's really where the implications long-term are for those children. And so when you're on a road and, you know, I wonder just how supported a lot of families feel around what do we do when we're not able to figure this out on our own and some of the shame and guilt that comes with it and how that Mm, may even inhibit sometimes people asking for help, right? And then they do ask for help, but they ask for help from family or friends who have an opinion about everything, right? Who can sometimes add sort of more um, to be upset about, right? Adding a little bit of fuel yeah. as opposed to sort of helping de-escalate things. And it's hard for them too, because they have, you know, connections with the people involved. Yeah, yeah, it's lost for them. So I just wonder if we as a society, you know, as a community have set up spaces and um, given enough information to folks who are struggling with this to say, hey, like there are avenues of support here. You don't have to deal with it on your own. These are really hard things that you shouldn't try to figure out on your own especially if um, there's still a lot of healing that hasn't happened from the relationship ending that spill over. A lot of it Mm. is not something that I think folks think about. Like I'm still hurting from losing you and I'm reacting a lot of the time in the way I'm parenting. And I don't even realize that because I imagine no one is interested in hurting the kids at all. Right. And if you ask any parent who's struggling to do this, um, none of them would say like, I want my kids to suffer in this. They're all trying to figure out how to survive it. The way people are trying to survive it can be really painful for the kids. Um, 
It's a great way to say that. Yeah. And so, you know, my heart goes out to those four kids in many ways because they're dealing with this all in the public light. Fortunately, vast majority of us get to do it in relative, you know, in privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, you know, begs the question with social media now, how folks who are considered private citizens, right, might use that platform to express hurt and frustration towards their partner. Um, I was reading about this in preparation for today's conversation, and there are more people who use social media to sort of poke and prod at their Uh ex um, and use it as a platform to vent. You know, a lot of it is to vent and to say, hey, to take polls, right? If you were somebody who's in this situation, what would you do? And this can get really ugly. So word of advice, don't bring them social media into the efforts to really figure out what's going on. It will almost always cause more harm than good um, is my thoughts on that. That's Yeah. Woods, did you have anything? I do. I think that's a really lovely, beautiful way to say that. And also in terms of uh, needing some extra support, I think the timing of that can fluctuate, right? So um, similar to what you're saying earlier, Sassan, about um, the process of sort of figuring out a new family can be smooth at first, but evolve to become more challenging, more painful. It can also be the reverse. And so people might need some more support at the start, but they also might need support later on, just I think like similar to any other kinds of grieving, right? That this for some people is um, a process of grief and a process of loss, but for everyone, it's a process of change and change requires flexibility and adaptation. And those Mm. are not easy, even in totally happy, healthy families, which is what I think you were saying, Patricia, that change in families is tricky to negotiate, um, even in the most well-functioning families. And so um, getting some support, I think, especially when divorce includes hurt, which a lot of times it does, that hurt doesn't sort of just automatically go away as we figure out how to separate. And in a lot of ways, it can sometimes get more painful. So getting some support through um, professional help can be a really powerful alternative to um, just getting advice or support from friends and family. That's great. I agree. Now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled The Effects of Parenting and Temperament Similarity Among Adolescent Siblings on Positive Family Relationships. Written by Dr. Jin Shin Shur at Zhejiang University and Dr. Nicole Campion Barra. Bar. I always want to say Barra because I like the Campion Barra. But anyway, I know it's not that. Dr. Nicole Campion Barr at University of Missouri. These authors explore how parenting siblings similarly or not may impact the quality of family relationships. Often in families with more than one child, we hear parents say, I love each of my children equally because it's true. Um, But parenting them equally can be challenging. While previous research has suggested that parenting each kid in a family the same is good for kids, parents have also pointed out that's sometimes easier said than done, especially because kids have unique personalities. Believe it or not, we're all individuals. Mm -hmm. However, parents' differential treatment of siblings has been associated with negative child and adolescent outcome. The authors point out that kids compare the treatment they get from their parents and can feel like they're being treated unfairly if they're parented differently, potentially affecting their self-esteem, their sense of security, and how close they feel to their siblings. If, though... Kids can justify the differential parenting by considering how their siblings are different from themselves and may have unique needs. For example, siblings in families with a child with developmental disability, different treatment from mom and dad doesn't necessarily feel unfair in those circumstances. In addition, the authors of this study highlight that kids from the same family can have a very different temperaments and that kids' personalities draw out unique types of parenting. I can attest to this. And sometimes kids work to be different from their siblings on purpose in an attempt to differentiate their personalities. As the age, older siblings don't want to be treated like their little kid siblings, while younger siblings might work hard to get the attention in the family from different ways, acting out or being super silly, funny, who knows. 
All these developmental and personality factors can add up to lots of variations within families and unequal parenting, which could affect the quality of families' relationships at a time when positive parent-child and sibling relationships are key for children's well-being. That's adolescence. So, Sarah, I've got three lovely kids um, who each have their own little lovely personality, for sure. Uh, the 11-month-old, we quite haven't figured out his personality, <laughs> but I'm sure it's going to be different. But now I'm dying to know, should I be treating them all exactly the same, different? Talk me through what's going on here. <laughs> So uh, these authors, I really think this is a very cool, very family type Mm, of research, right? Systems, systems. It's very cool. So they're focusing on the sibling relationships as well as the parent-child relationships and looking at how this occurs over time and looking at differential treatment across these relationships. It's very, very cool. So specifically, they're curious about whether parenting similarity, whether I parent similar across my kids, and family members' relationship positivity are associated, but also whether that link varies depending on how similar the siblings' temperaments are. Mm. So they did this research using 145 families. These families had at least two kids and at least one parent. Um, They recruited them from six junior high or high schools in a Midwestern college town. Um, The majority by far were white, um, most were college educated, and most, about three out of four, the parents were married and the birth parents of the siblings that participated Mm. in this project. So the firstborn kids had to be between 12 and 18. On average, they were 15 years old. And then their next younger siblings um, were between 9 and 17. On average, they were 12 years old. So So you're telling me there are some families in here who had an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old? It would be possible. Yes, absolutely. It would be possible. I don't know... Parenting champions. Yes. that uh, My parents had an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old at one point and then also had at the same time a 12-year-old. So, oh. um, But I'm Parenting sure we champions. were extremely easy. <laughs> we have very different temperaments, but we're all very lovely. And so on average, they were almost about three years apart. So um, okay. they had an even distribution of gender between those two siblings. So they had sort of an even number of like brother, brother, sister, sister, oh. older brother, younger sister. Okay. Um, So these families uh, participated in the study at two different time points. So at the beginning of the study, they came into a lab and they did some lab-based tasks, surveys, interviews in 2008, 2009. And then a year later, they did online surveys. So this study specifically uses the self-report data of the older and younger siblings. So not the parents, just the kids, which I think is really interesting, all from the siblings' point of view. Wow. Yeah. And so... At baseline, at the um, beginning of the study, these two siblings completed temperament questionnaires rating their own temperament. So their mood, adaptability, these sorts of things. Um, Questions like, I can easily talk with strangers. I fidget during quiet activities. And they also completed the child report of parental behavior inventory, meaning each of these siblings also described their perceptions of how their moms and their dads parent in multiple different categories of how they parent, focusing on that emotional, like warmth, supportive quality of the relationship, but also um, some of that control autonomy piece of the parenting behaviors, Mm. how much they are sort of coercing their kids versus letting them figure things out on their own. Which we know in adolescence, that balance of autonomy has to, sort of is, flex. Yeah. Has to flex and it can be a difficult time because of that because you're yep. having to flex and learn that from a parenting perspective. Yeah, I think that's really important, Patricia, because we're not just talking about sort of stable temperament that could look like sort of the natural temperament personalities that people sort of come into the world with and sort of stay stable. It can also be pieces that flex during this really critical yeah. time in child development, right? Adolescence can be a time of lots of change and autonomy, developing that ability to sort of define themselves and be a little bit more on their own is mm-hmm. a really big deal. Um, so what they did is they measured the distance in scores for each of these two areas, the temperament and the 
parenting behavior between the two siblings. So they looked to see how similar their reports were of their own personalities and also how they described their mom's parenting and their dad's parenting. Um, If you're watching this episode on uh, YouTube, I am using unbelievable amounts of hand uh, motions to describe statistics. Yeah. Um, And then they also completed a questionnaire that described the positive quality of their relationship with their sibling, their mom, and their dad. Mm. Yeah. So they did that at baseline, which they could control for. um, And also at that second wave, that's what they're looking at, what predicts the positive quality of those relationships over time. And so they did this, um, again, looking at mom's parenting, dad's parenting, the sibling relationship quality, mother-child relationship quality, and father-child relationship quality. So they did this across. And the parenting was reported by the adolescent. So this is all adolescents have All the siblings' reports, yep. All of them. So what they found was, in considering moms and their sibling relationship, when Mm -hmm. siblings' temperaments were more similar, when their personalities Mm. between the two kids were more similar, a higher level of mom's parenting similarity was related to a higher level of positive sibling relationship quality. And reverse, when the kids were low on temperament similarity, when they were more different in their personalities, if mom parented them more similarly, there was a less positive relationship between the siblings a year later. Oh, okay. Like the older sibling is like, I am the perfect child. Why are you treating me just as intensely as you're doing the second child who's like going to parties all the time? Is that the interpretation we're understanding? Yes. Potentially. Did you have a younger sibling? Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So this is true um, for older siblings saw it this way and younger siblings. So they tested it from both of those perspectives and it held true. Um, They found the same pattern when looking at dads. So when kids' personalities are similar and uh, dads parented the two kids similar, the siblings were closer. But that was true only from the older siblings' perspective. So not true for the younger siblings. Like the older siblings are really needing some difference here um, or else they really are resenting their younger sibling. They're less mm-hmm. positive, rather. I don't know that the measure Remarkably measure relatable. Percent, but... Remarkably yes, remarkably relatable. Yes, right. Yes. There was, my youngest brother refers to himself as the golden child of capital <laughs> G, capital C, and has somehow over the years convinced, like, my mom refers to him sometimes. She's very careful and very funny. Um, and also, uh, it's all a joke. And also, he's definitely certain that he is a magical, golden, perfect child. Uh, so yes, I also was reflecting on my own experiences. And then they looked at the parent-child relationship. So um, again, they found something similar for older siblings only, where they have that similarity in personality between the two kids. If the mom parented them the same, it was associated with a more positive mother-child relationship. The Hmm. kid, the older child, felt more positive about the relationship with mom. Similar for dads, and meaning when the kids were not similar in temperament, but they were being parented the same, less positive relationship quality with dad. Um, So I do think it's really interesting that the study is including solely these kids' reports of the parenting they receive because they're doing this from so many different angles to look at how this is associated with relationship quality in the family over time. But I would really, really be curious to see what the parents' reports looked like. And Mm. right, so if kids perceive these parenting behaviors to be different – Meaning, I'm reporting on mom's behaviors, you're reporting on mom's behaviors. The researchers look to see if they were different. We don't know in this project necessarily whether the kid technically perceived those parenting differences, which you could imagine that they would, but we don't know. Um, but we also don't know what parents would have said. Right. And I think that's really interesting, right? If a parent is intentionally trying to parent the kids uniquely, but it's not showing up. The kids aren't perceiving that or vice versa. Um, It's sort of another layer on top of this that I think would be really cool. And it was only across a year. You can imagine through childhood, but also a broader period of adolescence, how this evolves would be really, really interesting. Yeah, especially as it evolves through launching because presumably everybody is in the home. So how this evolves when launching that first child out of the home, whether it's to college or uh, wherever work, Um, that could also be really fascinating. I know. My parents launched me out to college and my younger brother had no rules anymore. It was remarkable (gasps) how 
<laughs> my mom will hear this and be, oh, that's not true. Well, he had rules. No, he didn't. Um, so I think for parents of more than one child, if you have kids with unique, different personalities, it might be helpful to think about in your family how you parent each child uniquely and specific to their individual needs rather than trying to treat children equally at all costs. Mm. Because I think that can be sort of a flavor that shows up in families. Like my job as a parent is I'm supposed to be really careful about everybody sort of getting the same treatment or even trying to do that retrospectively. Like when your brother was 10, this is the rules for them, and now you're 10, and so this is going to be the rules for you. But when your sibling is now 15, how fair does that yeah. feel? Um, and so if kids are alike, but they're treated differently, which I think this really makes sense, right? The reverse. If kids are similar, but they're treated differently, that could really feel unfair. Yeah. And you could see how that would affect their relationships with their brothers and sisters and their parents. That's what's going on here. We operate similarly, and, and this isn't really working out. It's the same for me as it is for him or her. Um, I didn't have sisters or my brothers. <laughs> um, if kids are different, though, but parented the same, that also could feel unfair. And also, it's not necessarily responsive to their unique needs. So I thought this study was very cool, family-oriented oh, so yeah. project. And I'm hopeful to sort of continue to see how this research evolves. I appreciated the article this week. I put me right back into my childhood. I, think. I had to like take a breath, take a breath. But I think, you know, just clearly reminded me sort of reinforce what we think a lot of us already know, but have a hard time doing because sometimes it's just easier to show up and just do the same thing right? oh, yeah. um, as opposed to adapt and make sure that you're meeting each child where they're at. Right. I think there's theoretically the notion of that. And the hope is that every parent can do that. But then you think about the reality of what that actually requires in terms of energy and resources. But what, you know, this article demonstrates is that's important. And that this idea that like equal is fair and like mm -hmm. the emphasis on being fair and it's like, no, equal is not fair. They're actually two very different things. Equal mm. means like not thinking about the needs of that yeah. person and just applying yeah. whatever you do equally and Fairness is about meeting the actual needs of the person and the other person, you know, that they might be associated with. So I think like one of the messages I always try to remind my clients and just in general is like, you know, when you're talking about parenting, it's not about quality. It's about fairness. Fairness yeah. is a very different concept. And mm -hmm. I think people want to be fair, right? But they confuse fairness. Like the only way to be fair is to be, do everything mm -hmm. equal. It's like, we really got to tease those ideas apart for people yeah, um, nice. a lot more in a way that really, because I think people can really get with the idea of like, yes, I want to be fair, but yeah. when we remind them it actually is not fair to treat people equally because each person shows up with different needs. I think people can really settle with that idea. I just don't think it's one that we push a lot within our field, but in general as a society. So, you know, I heard you, somebody said earlier, like, I love my children equally and I wish it would just be like I love my children sure. <laughs> equally you part, don't have to prove like, it I love, you don't yeah, have to prove it that's funny right and equal is not Fair. a demonstration of love right like in fact when you treat them equally probably there might be some harm happening there so yeah the intention good. is good of course but I think it's just really resetting people's understanding of what it means to treat your children fairly absolutely I also think it's interesting uh us I believe we're all the oldest is that correct yeah. And mm -hmm. Jacob is also the oldest. It would be really fascinating to hear this research uh, from a researcher who is the youngest or a middle child. It would be really interesting what their perspective is. This is definitely I'm reflecting on my own parenting. The 11-month-old, we won't necessarily loop into this, but my oldest two are very, very different. My oldest wants to do projects, wants to go outside, wants to like be with me and my husband, like interact. My middle would be content watching YouTube videos all day long. Like it's his joy. He loves it. So I'm always trying to figure out like parenting them is very, very different. Like what a consequence looks like for my oldest is different from my youngest. Like taking away sure. the Kindle for my oldest, she's like, I wasn't planning on watching it anyway. Sure. Like sure. doesn't. But for my youngest, it is devastating. Not my youngest anymore. Sorry, he's my middle kid. At the same time, my middle loves like toys. Like every time we go to Target, like he loves toys. Where my oldest, she's like, uh, I mean, 
whatever can we go like plant some stuff outside or like she would rather be with us and like that's her thing so i'm always worried like oh i just bought two toys for the middle um i should also buy toys for my oldest um so it's always constantly i worry about it but this article is kind of making me think meeting my children where they're at (laughs) maybe i'm doing an okay job i don't know we'll see time will tell they're not adolescents yet um (laughs) there's time to screw them up so well and you think about the fact that when i think about siblings that are really close in age it's hard for the parents i think to think about like how do we treat them different like developmentally age-wise they're so similar it feels easier just to say like but when there's a decent gap between them, I think you can rationalize it sort of more and you have it's a, easier. Sort of easier time in some ways right, to try to do that. Like the effort might be more there. But when they're like a year apart, two years apart, it's like, you know, you just sort of lump them together sometimes. And like yeah. I said, I, just, I don't think parents are doing it intentionally, of course, but I think they don't see how you still have to teach each child like they're an individual. And I don't know of any two siblings that are very, very similar, to be honest. And at least within my friend group, maybe there's a lot. Yeah, that's true. But I couldn't be more different than my brother (laughs) in every possible way. But the more I meet people, the more I realize it's so common to have siblings who are Mm -hmm. so different in temperament and in so many ways. So I think it's a really important lesson just to remember that like we have to really focus on who is standing in front of us here and what we need to do to support them. And just remind the other sibling if there is fear, like, oh, my other child's going to see that I'm not really responding to them in the way that I do. It's like, have conversations, explain why. Mm -hmm. You know, I think if the children are old enough, they'll understand and maybe really move away from the idea of like, oh, my parents, you know, are showing up for me differently. doesn't mean they love me any differently, right? Yeah. In an ideal world, certainly. It's a hard conversation to have. Like my oldest has already had a conversation. It's like, mm-hmm. you say things differently to me than I do to my brother. And I was like, do I do that? So it's interesting. I mean, they'll point it out to you. And is it good? Is it bad? I, I, it, she doesn't like it. So well, I've made yeah. strides to change. But having that conversation and not dismissing her feelings was something that like was sure. really key for me. Like, okay, yeah. I certainly did not mean to do this. I feel like a kind of a crappy parent. It's really super easy to be defensive in that moment. Sure. Um, and took me like, okay. And there've been a couple of uh, conversations. Uh, I don't know if I've nailed it yet or not, but I'm trying and being open and just recognizing that that happens. It's okay. It's not your fault. There's so much going on. Sometimes you parent on autopilot a hundred percent. And then just someone brings it to your attention. Like, oh yeah, maybe I was doing that. All right. I'm going to make it and try not to do it. But then there's a question, like when you say like, I'll try not to do it, but you know, it's like, well, maybe this has, like, there's a reason you're doing it. Right. And and age matters Mm -hmm. in terms of how you explain that. It's like, you know, I also treat you really differently because you have like, you know, there's all these, and I only have one child. So let me speak from a place of like, I have it easier (laughs) in this way. Like he doesn't doesn't compare. And it just makes me think that like, as a parent of more than one child, like there's this ideas about like how your children are perceiving their sense of like what is right yeah absolutely and maybe i people i whatever this is becoming about me i apologize um but it's true like what is that balance like maybe i was doing it for a reason but i know it makes her upset so like what is that balance and again not being defensive about it just like being aware of your parenting and what that and being intentional and trying not to be on autopilot in those situations it's okay to yeah. be on autopilot parenting because otherwise, how do you survive? How do you survive? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is why I'm very curious about the next layer of information for these families, yeah. like how parents yes. would have described their own temperaments, their kids' temperaments, their intentionality around their parenting. Do they perceive it's different or similar? A hundred percent. It's exactly why I'm curious about mm-hmm. what this looks like if we move up in yes. the family very cool dyadic research yeah yay and then go to generational it'll be a lot of fun it'll be amazing Uh, you know we've just planned your entire program of research yes we're big fans we're putting in requests it's like a dj (laughs) system for these researchers what we hope we see next because it's so cool i feel like we so often do that like with research we love what you're doing also can you do more can you do more (laughs) And also do it like you know this. this took, so yeah, <laughs> we know this took you years, but also, yes. can you do this? <laughs> yes, I love it. I love it. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah!
finally time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from parents, families, friends, um, and also our last segment. We see advice about how to be in relationships in movies and TV shows, and we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and all those numerous top 10 type lists. But believe it or not, a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to determine if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all at Attached Podcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. And as always, remember to share it with your loved ones. One thing that I find works really, really well is you're at a family gathering, family event, Thanksgiving, I know it's not the season, whatever holiday is coming up next, play the podcast out loud on your speakerphone in the middle of a conversation. People will say, pray tell, what are these beautiful dulcet tones coming out of your phone? And you're like, let me tell you, attached podcast. I find it works really, really well to share it with your loved ones in that capacity. Sure. Some may say that's bad advice. Not me. No, not these two. And I appreciate it. Um, so as I alluded to earlier in this episode, what we're talking about today is really all in the category of bad advice. So it's a little bit different this time. And so we're going to reflect uh, upon these bits of advice that people have given other people and maybe talk about why it's bad advice and maybe different ways to handle it or whatever comes to your mind. So it'll be a little bit different. So Dr. Marina Harris um, posted on Twitter and then it kind of blew up, as the kids said on Twitter, it went viral. (laughs) Um, What is the worst mental health advice you have ever received? And just as a bit of a spoiler alert, she also puts in um, like another tweet, what is the best yeah. mental health advice? So we'll do that next week. But this week, we're going to concentrate cool. on the worst advice um, that you've ever received. And we'll link to this tweet. And so you can read all of these. I'm not going to say anybody's names of the advice that they said that it was bad advice. Um, but you can go and look at all of this. So the, one of the first ones that was given, and these are not all mental health professionals that are giving this advice. Sometimes they're coworkers giving this advice to these people. So the first one, stop imagining imagining things, you're okay by the looks of it, was bad advice that they were given for their mental health. Reflections, thoughts. I mean, it's incredibly invalidating. Yeah, invalidating, I think think is what it, yeah. Yeah, and probably in some ways might say something more about the person who's offering the advice than the person who maybe feels like they're struggling. It's so dismissive as to maybe suggest that the person sharing the advice is really uncomfortable with discomfort, um, with struggle, with sadness, with anger, whatever that looks like. But um, there is, I mean, volumes, reams of research uh, about how powerful and important it is to be validated and um, feel seen and have people care and understand what you're going through. And that piece of advice is not advice whatsoever other than to please shut it down and step away you are making it up yeah you're making me feel uncomfortable kind of yeah Yeah. without taking responsibility for that Mm -hmm. right they're not taking responsibility Mm -hmm. for you making me feel uncomfortable it's just you're obviously inventing that in your head you're fine Oh gosh. Um, immediately I got this feeling, this sort of in the pit of my stomach, like this is so painful to hear someone respond that way, especially if someone is suffering or struggling or, you know, expressing some concern about what they're going through. You know, the thing I share with, um, the graduate students who are going through our training programs all the time. I've always said, I've always sort of taken, um, very, very seriously is this idea of like, when you show up with someone, you show up with curiosity. And um, to be curious is to really get to know what someone's experience might be. And so 
stop before you even ask, like to say, stop, you're imagining this before you're even curious about what it is that they might be expressing is it's inappropriate to say the least. Um, and there's so much that people, um, don't say that they're experiencing that they hold on to. Mm. So you're okay by the looks of it is just to assume yeah. that we all wear our hearts on our sleeve and that we're all just, you know, so much yeah. of what we feel and think we don't share as a society as people. So it's of course, it's really bad advice. <laughs> yeah. Kind of building on what you were just saying to Sesson is so often is particularly with mental health. You know, when we have a physical ailment, we have an amputation or something, it's you could see it. But so often with mental health, you can't see it, right? So just by assuming that someone was able to get out of bed, take a shower and get dressed today, oh, you must be fine, um, is invalidating, echoing what Woods was saying. Uh, but it's also just we know that's not necessarily how mental mm -hmm. health uh, concerns show up either. Okay, so the next one, just think happy thoughts. Oh, okay, then clearly it was my fault for thinking sad thoughts uh, is one. Um, and that was kind of what they said was just think happy thoughts. And then kind of echoing that someone else said, so this is kind of two in one, just look at the bright side. Woods. Yeah, I think um, that feels uh, quite a bit like toxic positivity. Yeah, I would which, agree with that. Um, I have a really strong reaction to in general. Um, again, I think it can speak to the person who's sort of sharing this idea. There, um, it's sort of couching like there's always silver linings as like this really important life perspective, but it's also really about sometimes I think their discomfort with negative emotion mm. and optimism and positivity are, I mean, there's plenty of research to suggest, right? That those things are really, really powerful for your mental health, for your physical health, for your relationships, that having positive affect, positive emotions, um, being optimistic about your future possibilities, those are all really wonderful and also positivity can be bad when it's forced on you is a really great example when it's not actually tied to positive outcomes and so i'm sure that's what that sounds like to a lot of people but um it is so dismissive and suggesting that it's just so much easier to do than for many people it is but also if we force that on ourselves, it also doesn't give the opportunity that we often need to sit with and learn how to be comfortable with sadness and disappointment and anger and frustration. And those are really, really important emotions too. Mm -hmm. Dismissing half of the human emotional spectrum is absolutely not positive. Absolutely. Sesson, thoughts? To sort of add to that, it's not positive and it's not possible. I think that's the other thing. I think just the way we are as human beings, we feel what we feel. We feel before we anything else. And so I think we are better off, like Sarah was saying, that we feel comfortable in sitting with the hard emotions. And it's not just about sitting with them. It's about honoring them and acknowledging why they're there and how they serve a function sometimes in our lives and whether or not it's adaptive or not, sometimes just acknowledging its presence and giving its space to say what it needs to say. And mm. that's important. So there's a reason why I think um, people, of course, try to encourage, you know, okay, Take these feelings, the hard ones, and also think about what else you might be feeling, which might be happy, right, in other areas of your life. But I think without acknowledging the hard feelings and really honoring what they serve, um, you in terms of purpose is really only going to cause sort of more harm down the line. I think the more we don't acknowledge sometimes those hard feelings, the more they build up, the more power they, they build. Yeah. And so... Um, yeah, not great advice. Imagine if just thinking happy thoughts was the cure for depression and anxiety. Like, do you not think that people, one, who have depression and anxiety have, have had happy thoughts? Um, but it feels to me like um, I have a friend who um, was diagnosed several years back with brain cancer. And he had a lot of people reach out to him of like clean diets that would help cure his brain cancer. It feels to me very similar. Like if mm -hmm. you eat 
gluten-free and sugar-free, I think your brain tumor will go away. And like, it feels the same to it's me. It's in your control. It's like, obviously in your control. <laughs> and therefore it was your fault, you know, right. um, is kind of how this comes off sometimes. And going back to what Sesson was saying, like, be curious, like understand. And also this is a someone or a colleague of yours, like if you don't have the capacity to handle this, you could also share that with them. Like, I'm so sorry this is happening for you. I'm so sorry. I don't have time to do this. I'm sure there's a better, more eloquent way to say that, by the way. But that's also okay as well, that you don't have time to take on. That's uh, what they're trying sure. to share with you boundary. right now. It's a yeah. boundary. And that's okay, yeah. too. Next. In times like these, you need to be around people. The person says this was specifically related to how I needed to have a job and my mental health would be fine. But what I actually needed was to be alone and rested. So uh, in times like these, you need to be around people, you know, get out there, go be around people. Interesting. I mean, there is certainly research to suggest that, you know, there's lots and lots of research that suggests that having healthy relationships is protective for mental health. But doesn't necessarily you need to be like physically embedded in those relationships <laughs> on a permanent status. Like, yeah. Um, I think what's really key and sort of what you're suggesting is that the person who received the advice was saying that's not at all what I need. And so I think, um, uh, again, in line with sort of this idea of toxic positivity, when we give advice... Um, I think often we don't ask somebody if they would like advice. Mm. Um, and also, what do you need from me right now is a really important question that um, when we're sort of just offering ideas about um, what you should do to go take care of this, um, it suggests that there's, first of all, a universal sort of shift for anybody who's struggling with their mental health, um, which there's not. We know that, or else it would be so much easier to just fix all of these things for everyone. Um, and also sort of dismissive of um, what anybody specifically needs, let alone whether or not they even wanted your advice. Whether they wanted your advice. <laughs> I hate that a lot, actually. Just jumping right in. When the alternative could have been just asking what kind of help and support you need and showing compassion. And compassion is incredibly healing. So what a missed opportunity and so many levels. Missed opportunity indeed. Sesson? So if I'm understanding this correctly, mm -hmm. the person provided advice, just go be around people. And yep. they said that that's not what they wanted with space to heal. Or yes. uh, sorry, alone and rest. Alone and rest. I guess it raises more questions for me than anything. I don't know. Um, you know, I do believe there's power in being in connection, yeah. right? So there's healing opportunities in that. But if you're around people who are not, offering, um, I think, support in the way that you need it at that moment, it can also be more harmful. So perhaps, yeah, go be around people could be a good thing if those people they were around were able to provide the support that they needed, but that's not guaranteed. So sort of a blanket response of go be around people isn't, I think, helpful in this case, because it's a go be around the people that could be supportive right. of you right now. Oh, I like more, that. I think in line of how I would move. And I say that too, instead of like sort of just, you know, the, in the response, they said, that's not what they need at this time. And while I think, you know, first and foremost, we should really honor what we think we need. But I also think sometimes we pull away from people when we struggle with our own mm -hmm. um, mental wellness in a way that becomes more detrimental to us. What we think is a solution can actually cause us to experience more symptoms in some ways, right? Um, especially when you're thinking about um, anxiety and depression in particular and how that mm -hmm. can be a reinforcing of some of those symptoms. So I think it's a fine line, but yeah. more than anything, it's about the idea of being around people who really can support the need um, that you have at that moment, which is not easy to sort of determine. Right. Exactly. I really like the nuance that you're uh, suggesting. I mean, obviously, we, we have a podcast about healthy relationships and how healing and important and critical those are um, yeah. to our lives. Um, but also listening to other people and how to show up and be supportive for them is so important um, as well. So um, a lot of heavy stuff. So I wanted to bring up one last bit, the Olympics, what a month or so ago, um, Sarah sent me this tweet of a lovely, I believe it was an ice skater talking about his 
family. And I thought this was really lovely to end on and also reflect on um, the research that we talked about today. Since stepping off the ice and also, you know, what do you think about growing up that the way that they raise you that help you get to where you are today? Oh my gosh. You know, I guess the second part of that question, I think, you know, I have the most optimistic parents in the entire world. Um, you know, I always laugh, you know, when people, you know, meet me and they say, oh my gosh, you're so positive. Where do you get it from? And then they'll like meet my mom and they'll be like, oh, we understand. But then they meet my dad and they're like, oh, we thought your mom was positive. My dad's like on a whole nother level. So, you know, I think that um, they just, they always look at every single high and low as some type of an adventure and they always see the good and the bad and they they're just excited to be part of it all you know even my dad um he wrote me this text today just being like i don't know what's next but i can't wait to <laughs> i can't wait to go to to be a part of it and i hope you allow me to you know be part of your next journey whatever that is and i just think that's my family. They're always along for the ride. They're always excited um, to be there. And they're there to pick me up after a bad skate, after a rough event. And they, they're they there to celebrate with me through all the good. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know the rest of your question. <laughs> Oh my goodness. How? Jason Brown, so cute. Jason Brown. Wow. It's so sweet. So unbelievably. Oh my gosh. That is so warming, honestly. In all the work that we do sometimes, and we think about the world and how people show up in it, and just that just feels like something to put in my pocket right now <laughs> and to pull out and look at whenever I need it. I mean, it's so wonderful and it's so like, it makes me hope that I can be that type of parent, that my children will uh, think of me or show up and be that type of friend, that type of person that can uh, evoke such fond memories from somebody. Uh, just so powerful. So absolutely amazing. So I agree with you. I think I've watched it like five times. Isn't it so beautiful? I can't even stop. I've sent it to so many people. Uh, I love it. So phenomenal. And so we'll put the link so you all can watch it and to get those warm fuzzies whenever you um, want to or need to or whatever the mm -hmm. case may be. Mm -hmm. um, so as always, thank you for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on all of those social media. Um, about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. Cannot wait to talk about it.